Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News, and John Cross of the Daily Mirror. Logically, there's no reason why the fact Rafa Benitez used to manage Liverpool should be used against him. Logic, though, comes a poor third to tribal loyalty and the form table. Benitez will never be accepted by a vocal minority of Everton fans because of his associations and achievements with the club on the opposite side of Stanley Park. He'd be under pressure in any case since his team has picked up only one point in seven games. Defeat at Goodison in Wednesday's Merseyside derby may be a tipping point. So Jordan, how ironic would it be if Liverpool ended up costing Rafa his job, it would be very ironic if if he was the if Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool were the the men that ended Rafa's time at Everton. I don't think they will. I, I think even if Liverpool win that game and win it convincingly, I don't think it will be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. I think it would probably be the prelude to the beginning of the end. But I, I don't think he'll be fired this week. Whatever happens. He's under a lot of pressure. One of the questions that I asked myself, or that was being asked, that I asked myself at the start of the season, that I found very interesting was, is there anything wrong in taking a manager from your, formerly of your your biggest rivals? And I think there's two parts to this. There's the profession and there's the passion. The profession says, well, it's a job. You know, life moves on. Everyone should work. If the opportunity comes up, not ideal, but it's a job. Do the best you can and move forward. But the passion element of of it makes me think that actually it's not acceptable and it shouldn't happen because this is football and football is one of the most tribal sports in the world. And one of the reasons why we love football, we love our football team so much. I don't want to kind of make out like football fans love their teams more than cricket, you know, lovers love their teams or rugby. I don't want to do that. But one of the things that makes football so special is the tribal nature and the idea of taking a manager even if it's the best manager in the world, but formerly had success with your biggest rivals, I just don't think that sits well. And I don't think as an Arsenal fan, I could take a 10 times winning Champions League manager of Spurs at my club. I just couldn't, I just couldn't have it. 
So for me, he was always up against it. And I, I think there's an element of no matter what he did or does at Everton, there's going to be a small section of Everton supporters. They're never going to have him. They're never, ever going to have him. And what's also ironic about this, this fixture coming up, Mike, is that in a really weird way, Liverpool fans might actually prefer Rafa Benitez to stay there at Everton. They might actually, they might not want to battle them 5-0 and see him sacked. It might suit their, the agenda, a little bit like the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer situation at United, where everybody else wanted Solskjaer to stay because he was doing such a bad job there. It suited Man United's rivals to have him in place. So two parts answer to your question. One, I don't think he will be fired this week regardless. But secondly, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of taking a manager formally who was in bed and a very good bedfellow of, of a rival. Well, that's just wonderful insanity, isn't it, Jordan? Yeah, happy, happy for you, mate, happy. We'll also park, if we could, John, the idea that Tottenham could have a manager who'd won the Champions League 10 times, which again is stretching things a bit. Let's look at this dispassionately, if we could. Isn't Benitez simply a prisoner of previous regimes the problems are underlying they predate him you know this is a club that spent half a billion pounds on players without any real return yeah and what was Benitez left to do in the summer sign Andros Townsend who who let's be fair here you know opening what two three months of the season was an absolute revelation and sort of, I don't know, we reached peak Andrews Townsend, it felt like, when when he scored at Old Trafford, which wasn't so long ago. And people were saying, oh, that's a great signing. Damari Gray, I really like Damari Gray. I think there's a real player there. And not so long back, if, if circumstances had been different, he might have moved for £30 million. So again, a bargain basement signing. And again, it's it's having to be done on a budget. Where I think that is more of a hostage to fortune of, of, of Benitez He's rather like Jordan. I totally agree with the point. It's so difficult coming from managing and being such an iconic part of that previous success of your greatest rivals. I mean, <laughs> from day one, it was ever thus. They were basically signing a manager saying, he's a world-class manager. He's got this baggage. So he's got to be that extra bit good to convince our fans that he's worth the hassle, worth everything that goes with him. And I just think that coupled together with so much spending, not just on on uh, transfer fees in the past, but contracts. They're big players, Everton. Really big. Look at examine their wage bill. They've got a lot of players and they've got a lot of players on big, big money. And I, I just think they had to do everything in the summer in a budget to fall into, into line with sort of Premier League spending rules, their own spending rules. They, they weren't back in Europe. They just lost a world-class manager and inspiration in, in, in Ancelotti. And let's be fair here, Ancelotti made a good start, rather like Benitez, and then tailed away a bit. There's a, th- there's a pattern running here, and that's a lack of direction, I think, in terms of the squad building, in terms of the squad. Where next for Everton? I do think it would be far too soon to make any, any panic judgments and, and, and calls on Benitez, because it was always going to be a big job, Everton, to turn this around. And he did make a decent start and people were sort of saying, oh, this is, this is looking good and his signings are good. And I just think, yeah, it's not been a great run. What is it, seven now? And it's it's not looking good for them ahead of, ahead of the Merseyside derby. But I just think that patience is required. I really do. Otherwise, they'll be making, I think, snap decisions based on previous mistakes rather than Rafa's mistakes. I suppose injuries are an obvious issue, but obviously in the current emotional climate that doesn't offer much protection 
against criticism. I found it interesting, Jordan, that Jurgen Klopp, you know, the much-professed lover of heavy metal football, saying that he didn't really like the physicality and intensity of a derby. I thought, thought it was straight up his street, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that surprised me as well, actually. As I saw it, his brand of football was poetic chaos, you know, full throttle, fast-paced, intense, aggressive, re- really, really cause havoc with high-quality players. So to hear him say that, yeah, I, I, I was a bit surprised as well. And to, the, the, the derby really embodies all of those things. It's chaos, it's noise, it's it's aggression, it's passion. It's it's not really about patterns of play and about pretty passes. It's really about, you know, winning winning second balls and all that sort of thing. So, I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I thought this would have been the fixture that he would have loved. And from reading his autobiography, I think in his book he does say that his, his, his this is why it was even more weird for me, that his favourite fixtures back in Germany, that when he was a manager there, were the derbies and were the ones that were the most were the most manic ones. So I, I don't know if he's had a change of heart or if it's the evolution of, of Jurgen Klopp, but it didn't fully make sense, sense, sense to me either. Yeah. Liverpool, though, John, they're in irresistible form, aren't they? They've almost got a new front three emerging now. Salah's got 11 goals, Jota and Mane seven. Three goals per game are averaging as well. With Jota, five goals in the last five starts. Does he de- demand a regular place now on merit? Yeah, I do think he does. I think it's always difficult when... I think there's been a temptation in the past, hasn't there, to to play him a little bit deeper and sort of try to play the, the classic front three and then Jota just behind. And that hasn't always worked. But I just think with Firmino's often the the regular four guy, if you like, to, to make way for Jota. And then obviously with, with injuries, I guess Jota will get some time, game time anyway and, and, and rotation. But Jota is so direct and he just offers something a little bit different. I mean, honestly, I think we'd be... We'd be lying, wouldn't we, if we said that any of us really thought that they could sign Jota for, what, 40 million quid and be the absolute success and sensation that he has been. I mean, he, he was he was good in flashes, please don't get me wrong, for Wolves, but it's just he's just been amazing, really, for... And so he's raised his game and he's clearly been able to raise his game because, you know, signing for a club like that and within that teamwork sort of framework basically raises, raises your own level. But they're just... It, it gives them a different, slightly different edge because I think that Firmino is such a clever link player. Whereas I think with Jota, Jota almost enjoys kind of being the thrust and it feels like, you know, Mane should be, when those three play together, Mane should be the the, the, the thrust of it. But Jota actually ends up, as, as he did on Saturday, by the way, getting on the end of the final ball and being the man in the middle. And so it's just a very intriguing Link and it's one also, I guess, that basically catches opponents out because Jota just gives them a different different way of playing, and it feels like there's just no way of stopping Liverpool. And there's no way of figuring out how to stop them either. With when, when Jota gives them that different angle, mm. I just want to just broaden this a little bit, if I, if I may, Jordan, and look at the common problems of teams who are, are basically trying to hang on to the coattails of the top four. And I'm thinking there of Everton and and Spurs probably, where is there a pattern here? There's really no long-term managerial strategy. 
the recruitment is poor. So you've got squads which basically mix and match the ideas and styles of previous managers. Well, I think that the, to the first part of your question there, the idea that the likes of Everton and Spurs are trying to hang on to the coattails of the top four, I'd argue they're hanging on to the coattails of European football. I think they're probably one stage beyond or behind even the top four race. I mean, if you were to put you know, a, a pound of, of, of your money on a team finishing fourth slash fifth, I reckon you'd probably name three or four teams you'd name before Spurs and Everton, that those two teams for me are trying to get into Europe. They're finished, trying to finish top seven as it currently stands. But you're right, in terms of where they want to be as a force in European football, we saw it with Spurs more so in the last few years, less so with Everton. I'm not seeing a plan. There's remnants of at least three managers worth of players in both of those squads, which is never really a good sign because the guy that's coming in, so Conte and Benitez now that are in, they're having to work with players that you know from three managers ago sort of thing. So the lack of a plan does seem to be a problem. I do think though when you bring in someone like Benitez and you bring in a, a Conte that both those those clubs have done, that does says to that says to me that there is some kind of a plan because we're bringing in two serious winners here who, if only in the short term, the bare minimum, can give us an upturn in 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 results. You know, we've not seen it with Spurs yet. We saw it at the start of the season with Everton. They've had injuries since, so they've had a slight dip. But I think there's an element of, okay, we're bringing in two serious guys here who know what it takes to get teams onto the next level. Now what they've got to do is work out the next five years for those clubs. Where do we want to be in five years' time? Are we trying to be a top four team, a Premier League winning team? And then if so, do what well, what seems United are doing is bringing in that that figure in, in, in Ranić who doesn't want to be a manager but wants to be the person that actually is the overlord, if you like. Doesn't want the limelight of being the guy, but has the brains to be able to be the puppet master almost. Everton and Spurs need those kinds of guys that can have that wider look at what's going on in the next five to ten years. I don't know if they've got those people in place, but they've they've struggled with Everton more so in the last decade because they've not they've they've scattergunned in signings, in, in managerial appointments, and not had that five, ten year plan or person to implement a plan that can actually see them sustainably finish top six, top four, you know, year in, year out. Mm. You know, their their horizons are a little bit more limited, but I suppose, I don't know if you'd agree with me, John, that if you look at, if you want to look at an example of a club which is building in the right way with intelligence and with a long-term view, Brighton comes to mind really easily. But still, even Brighton, and I say that with, with, with respect to them, their fans seem almost prone to this sense of entitlement that, we, that we're beginning to see developed in modern football. You know, the fans booed their team off after that goalless draw against Leeds on Saturday evening. No wonder Graham Potter's perplexed. Yeah, look, I do sympathise with Graham Potter. I think that Brighton, a brilliantly run football club, from Tony Bloom down to Danishworth to Paul Barber's behind the scenes, and every structure there is right, and it's given Graham Potter, the manager, every opportunity to build long-term foundations for success. The only thing I thought was, and it was a bizarre game, wasn't it? Because it was the most un-nil-nil draw you'll ever, ever see. I mean, it was ridiculously exciting. Such a good game of football. But I, my take on it was was this, really. I, look, I understand why Graham Potter would be upset at hearing those boos and their kind of rumblings. 
I thought that that was born out of frustration because Brighton have been here so many times before and they started the season so well. They got themselves up into the top four. Wasn't there a game that if they'd won, I think they could have gone top? Mm. I mean, it was a ridiculous start to the season. It was fabulous. But equally, even last season, they played so many teams off the park but couldn't finish. Their, their play has been absolutely terrific at times and they were really good Saturdays with Leeds in fairness at times and they just couldn't finish it and I just think if they if they had the finishers to to a match match the attractive approach play then they would be much higher and you wouldn't get that frustration from the fans I think it was the frust that the fans getting just frustrated saying we have been here so many times before we've seen this performance so many times where we've dominated the opposition just couldn't put the ball in the net and that's not to say they haven't got decent forwards you know like Trossard you know Neil Mopay causes defenses problems but let's be honest here they haven't got the out and out prolific goal scorer and there's a reason for that, because they just cost so much money. If you're going to try and buy one rather than sort of develop one and bring one through, that that's there's a price that Brighton just can't afford in their model. And so they're basically trying to sort of develop one or try and find one, and they've just not been able to do that. So actually, I, I sympathise where Graham Potter is coming from, but I think when he sits back and analyses it, he'll be going, hmm... Maybe it's just more frustration than than actual real anger. I think really because I think the fans probably feel for the manager in the frustration. Yeah, I suppose one of the things that did come come across very strongly in that game was the way that Tarek Lamptey has been. He's just hit his strap straight away after those nine months that he's lost to injury. Where do you think Jordan does he stand in the pecking order of of English right backs at the moment? I think five years ago, he is probably the best. <laughs> but the bar has gone up so high, so fast in that position. I don't know what's happening in England right now, producing, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> right back, as I remember, it used to be the most undesirable position to play in ever. No one wanted to play at right back when I was at school, you know, apart from maybe defensive midfielder. And even defensive midfielder, at least you're kind of in the middle of the pitch where the action's happening. You'd rather play there. No one, right back was for people that just literally couldn't couldn't play anywhere else. And now it seems to be with the likes of Trent Alexander-Arnold, Lamptey, Carl Walker, a position where a lot of the creativity for the, the hub of the team is now being, is now being born. I, I rate him very, very highly. I wanted Arsenal to sign him last season. I, I've, I've for years been a critic of Hector Bellerin at Arsenal and I thought that he would have been someone that I think had a really, really high ceiling. He then got the injury. So that obviously kind of, you know, poo-poo-poo-pooed that at the short term. And now Tommy Asu, who I love, Arsenal have now got in. But I, I think his ceiling is very, very high. In terms of England... It's really unfortunate. It's that whole kind of Andy Murray syndrome that you're maybe just really, really great in the wrong era. <laughs> you, just, you just come along at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, in any other era, he probably starts for England or he's in the top two for sure. But I think that with with the likes of Rhys James, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Carl Walker, Wan-Bissaka's really, I want to mention him, I think we'll get to the United game in a bit. He's got he's regressed. But with, with those guys all, all currently playing really well, I think he's got a job on his hand in, in getting anywhere near that England squad. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if he was miles from the squad. And that seems criminal considering the talent he's got and potential that he possesses. But there's just there's just four or five better right-backs in front of him. So 
I, I think personally at the moment he's miles off the England conversation. Not because he's not good, that the bar is just so high. It's just unfortunate he's come around at this particular particular time. Mm. It's it's a bit, I think this is going to be a subject that we're going to have to return to before the World Cup, probably on several occasions. John, you know, you follow England very closely. You're Gareth Southgate. You've got Alexander Arnold's. I think it's ten assists now in his last eight games. You've got Reese James as an absolute phenomenon at Chelsea. Who'd you go with? I do think it's between those two. Look, it's really interesting that that even against the lesser opponents recently, Southgate has gone with a back three and wing-backs. So uh, it just feels as if, because in recent times, he's sort of switched between the two. And rather like it before 2018, they settled on a formation, i.e. the back three, in the, in the year building up to the World Cup and went with it and stuck with it and said that this is the way we want to play. So I think that my reason for sort of fit, honing in on this is that I think you're going to see the wing-backs. I just love Alexander-Arnold and what he offers you in terms of the quality of passing, the cross-field passing, the switch of play, the assist, the, 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 the crossing. I just think that he's got to have somewhere there, get the confidence that he's going to be given a chance for England, a proper chance. I mean, he's, he, you know, he's finished the game, what was it, three assists against San Marino. Up until the closing stages of that game, he still looked a player that didn't quite feel at home playing for England. And then he finishes with a plum and in such style. I just think if you can get an Alexander-Arnold, then there's something to be said about Southgate, that he hasn't quite Alexander-Arnold. And, and I think this is why sometimes he doesn't pick him, produce his club form for country. But if he can, then I think Alexander-Arnold... And I think the reason, by the way, for that is because he doesn't feel an automatic pick and he doesn't feel sometimes he has the confidence of the manager. And I think that's completely fair. So I think if he can get to that level, then the leader in the clubhouse is Alexander-Arnold. But then I look at Rhys James and I think Rhys James has almost the complete package. He's a fabulous defender. He's so aggressive. He's so strong. He's brilliant going forward. And the way that his technical ability is fabulous and he reads the game so well. He gets into these positions. He joins up with midfield. He bombs forward. You know, he finished the game yesterday on the left and just because he, you know, he gave gave Chelsea another option because he's that clever. He's that good. And I just think those, those two are the way forward. And I think, you know, Carl Walker... To finish that sort of conversation, he's the right sided centre half for me in the in the back three, because James and Alexander Arnold are just phenomenal players. Their technical level also on the ball is completely different to Wambasaka, who's a brilliant, tenacious defender. But frankly, is miles off it. I think to to be honest with you, for for a top four team in terms of possession and on the ball, he's just not good enough. Just miles off it. I think just briefly back on Lamptey as well, what's going to go against him, I fear, in leading up to the World Cup is that James, Alexander-Arnold and Carl Walker have all got a chance and a very good chance of playing in a Champions League final for their three clubs, going to the latter parts of elite competitions. He he doesn't. Lamptey plays for Brighton with all due respect. Brighton would have to finish in the top six for him to really get the attention, I think, that was on a par with any of those guys. So I think that would go against him as well. 
and I and I, I agree with what John says there about Reese James of of the of the of the, the picks. My pick would be Reese James, and one of my colleagues at Talksport, Hugh Wozencroft, who's covering England at the moment, he was at the England training camp recently for their last outing, and he said he watched them train the whole squad. He said of the entire squad, strikers included, the best finisher in the entire squad was Reese James. He said he included Harry Kane and Sancho and Grealish. In the, he said the best finisher was Reese James. And I, I was blown away by that. And, and I think what I've seen and what we've seen now is goal tally kind of backs that up a little bit as well. Is that not only defensively do I think he's very intelligent, his positional play is very good, he's very adaptable. I think he's less good as a right back. I think he's phenomenal as a, as a right wing back, but I think he's good as a right back. But we're also seeing that his delivery, I, I think it's on par with Alexander Arnold now. I, I, I think his crossing of the ball is, is level with him. And I think he's, he's adding goals now, good goals as well. So for me, it, it would be Rhys James at, at this stage. Mm. You were at uh, Stamford Bridge on, on Sunday afternoon, John. With Chelsea, did almost Thomas Tuchel outthink himself a little bit yesterday? Because it seemed to me his his bench was stronger than the actual team that he put out. Yeah, it was a weird one. I couldn't get my head around it, really. Because they, 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 they Juventus on the Tuesday night, and that was an intense game, a really good performance. And then they got Watford Wednesday. I can see it from the point of view then that you've got a hard game Sunday and then Wednesday and you're trying to rotate... But it felt like he, he he did that too much. And so Lukaku, I can understand because he's clearly not completely match fit, you know, ready yet. I feel sure that he'll start Wednesday, surely. But others like Mount or Havertz, what's going on there? You know, I just think Mount is a sort of a bit of a must pick and Havertz gives them a different way. And I just felt as if they were playing. Yeah. I thought, he, I, I think he thought, I can rest and rotate here a bit because we're going to take United. And I think he sort of got that slightly wrong. You know, hudson Adoy is a really interesting interesting player because the ability's there, definitely. And you can tell that Tuchel wants to give him op- every opportunity. Did he take it? I'm not sure, really. I don't... But there's so much ability there. And I just think that that's an interesting, interesting one. But I do think that <sighs> Jorginho was... I mean, it's so unlike it, it, and so unlike him, his mistake, and then redemption, then then later on, and I t- it was a bit, it was just a, you know, Chalaber is honestly such a good find, and I, I love the way that Tuchel has brought him in and, and, and bled him in and, and sort of given him that, that every opportunity, and there's some really good performances there, but I do think he should have perhaps had that core of, you know, sort of just. To keep it as strong as possible, because you looked at United lineup and you're going, "What sort of thing?" That's, that's it's got three midfield destroyers. They've come not to lose the game, and then you look at Chelsea and you go, "Well, that lineup, who's going to win it for them?" And so it just felt as if Tuchel rather took United as he thinks, "Right, I'm going to go and win that. We're going to win that game." And listen, if Rudiger puts that away. Rudiger's one of my favourite players, by the way. He's just such a character. He's such good fun to watch in a game. And I just felt sure he would score when the when the ball came to him at the back post, completely unmarked, unmarked and he skied it. If that goes in and you go, well, Chelsea deserved it anyway. And they did deserve to win, in my view. But but ultimately, but just resting and rotating a little bit too much, as much as I love Thomas Tuchel, I thought he got that one a little bit I, wrong. I agree, actually. I think that Chelsea, we look back on this, 
as two points dropped and a big two points. United and Manchester United, but they're not, as we all know, in good form. And I think that especially, okay, Liverpool and Manchester City battered United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Chelsea would have loved him to have hung on for another week so they could have their turn. But I still think that in a season where it's looking like we've got three giants, they're going to go all the way. Every point matters. Games like this, if Chelsea want to win the Premier League at home to United in this form, I think they'll be thinking we need to be winning that game. That's, that's definitely two points dropped. So I, I agree with John. I think that Tuchel took them a little bit too lightly in, in this game. And I think that, that that would be, with Liverpool and Manchester City also winning, I, I, I think Chelsea should be a bit disappointed that they, that they let that two points get away. Yeah, I, no, I must admit, I, I probably fear for Watford who play Chelsea on Wednesday night because I think Lukaku will come back and they you know, that could be a, a four or five job, I suspect. John, one of the things about being at the bridge is I, I, I love the, the view that you get from the press box because it's great for people watching. You know, I noticed you did your piece around a bit that this morning. Give me an idea of the sort of, you know, the emotions that you see in managers in a big game like that. Well, Thomas Tuchel is one entertainer, this guy is. I, lo- I love him. I've got to be honest, when he arrived at Chelsea, I was thinking, mm, you know, this combative, combustible character, is it? Is it going to work? The fallouts have been notorious, frankly, both, you know, on leaving Dortmund and, and PSG. But I, actually, he's been a, a ball of energy and he's been infectious. I think a lot of people got it wrong about he'd suddenly overlook the young players that Frank Lampard had bled into the team. He champions youth, he champions young players and he's proved it. And he's so passionate on the touchline. Just brilliant entertainment and entertaining. Sinking to his knees in the 97th minute when Rudiger smashes it over the bar. Getting himself booked. And by the way, I've got so much sympathy with him. Because when the ball was played through to Ronaldo, yes, it clipped off a Chelsea player. But Ronaldo was so far offside. And yet it's not cut down by the linesman. Because the linesman presumably is under instructions. Don't flag because of VR. I mean, what a joke, by the way. You know, he's just inside his own half. But it still was a dangerous break, which resulted in a corner and a bit a spell of pressure, which would have been alleviated had the linesman correctly put up his flag because it was miles offside, I thought. So I can understand that. And then on the other side, you've got Michael Carrick, who was just focused on the pitch the whole time, making the odd hand signal, but just really intently looking at it. But from behind, you had Darren Fletcher wearing an earpiece, Kieran McKenna looking at the video screen. Well, hang on a minute. All those three are there together. So, who's the earpiece to? You know, we're not stupid. We're not stupid here. Ralph Raniak is basically waiting in the wings. It's the most Ralph Raniak team that you're ever going to likely to get. We we are assured Michael Carrick was was de- defiant and saying no, absolutely not. He didn't pick it. But that was a team about pressing. That was a team about hard work. And those are the hallmarks of Raniak. And totally, totally at odds with every other team that United have picked, either under Solskjaer, where Carrick has been part of the coaching setup, or previously, even away from home, another must-not-lose game at Villarreal. So who are we kidding here? It just seems obvious. And at various points, 
McKenna and Fletcher. Fletcher, by the way, was very animated, kept on getting up and getting loving his rows with, with Tuchel, barking orders at Carrick, and then Carrick was relaying it onto the players on the pitch. I mean, it was brilliant entertainment, the little dynamics there. But I just felt as if that was management by remote control. Yes, I'm aware, and we must put the rider in at this point, that United say, absolutely not, and that definitely didn't happen. But you could have fooled me because that had... the And also, by the way, I thought some of those players... And I'm not... It's just a natural inbuilt reaction here. But I thought some of those players put in performances because they're playing for a new manager. It's a natural thing. We can't go killing those players for doing that because it's what every player does before a new manager arrives. It's just natural. It's just life. It's just football, basically. But it was huge. It was better than the match, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, Jordan, is that you know one of the characteristics of, of Ranić's management is that he likes teams without individuals. How does that tally with a certain Cristiano Ronaldo, who is going to be at the centre of the mile? Maelstrom, isn't he? He's, he's just basically the, the force of his personality, good and bad, will help to shape United's season. Do you think he his ego could accept that his role might be just as an impact sub? No, no. And I think one of the most interesting narratives now is going to be how United play this out are they going to persist with Ronaldo over the next 18 months I think who they appoint long term next season whether it's Pochettino whoever I think will have a bearing on whether they keep Ronaldo or not but there's a video going around I saw yesterday where Ranika said before that he would never sign Ronaldo because he's too old and that was five years ago <laughs> so you know if, 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 if then he wasn't really a fan in terms of signing him then, then that doesn't look particularly good for Ronaldo right now. I, I agree with every, everywhere that John just said. I think that this was a Randnick team. I think that the Sancho starting is something that says to me that he sees him as the modern day winger, a guy that not only contributes creatively, but, cre but contributes in terms of work ethic as well and, and doubles up and works hard and that's a very big hallmark of recent German Bundesliga football so this was manage, manage, managing by remote. Ronaldo, they've got, I think this is now where Man United have to assert themselves as the biggest club in the world. If they want to label themselves the biggest club in the, in the world they have to conduct themselves accordingly. They have to make the biggest decisions in the football world and one of those may be actually for all the positives that Cristiano Ronaldo brings to the club, the goals, the marketing, the loving, actually, on the pitch, is it working for us overall? And if the answer to that question is a no, then, well, why are you here? You're, 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 it's a very expensive vanity toy that they've, been, they've got going into next season. So I think the person, the decision has to be made almost before the appointment of the manager is made ahead of next season. Can we make Cristiano Ronaldo as he is, work for the betterment of this football team and club? And if the answer to that question is no, they have to then move him on. Conversely, if he feels, actually, I don't feel I'm going to get the latitude that I maybe got under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer here, is it best that I move on and try and get the final few years of my career squeeze us out somewhere else? So I think how they play this out is going to be interesting and how the games that he plays, I mean, Arsenal, mine and John's club, 
I've got United next. If he benches him in that game as well, that's two big clubs, Chelsea and Arsenal, that he's been dropped for. How does he receive that? And that's a home game as well. So I think it's very, very interesting. I'm keen to see, I don't have an answer, but I'm keen to see how United now manage this. And I think if he starts, if he's benched the next game, that will tell us a lot in terms of how United see his future at the club. Mm. Do you see United, John, almost building their team around Sancho and Rashford? Oh, yeah. Rash- Rashford is... <sighs> Rashford, I think, has had a difficult year or so, really. And, I mean, last season, he just finished the season, I felt, in, in bits. And I just think that he sacrificed himself, I think, a lot for, for, for Man United and for England because he delayed and delayed on injuries and treatment. There's no doubt about it so that he could be available for England in the summer. And he's such a key part of the squad. I just feel as if like Rashford is such a good player who almost needs a bit of a reset in, in terms of... <laughs> it feels like, yeah, again, he's kind of, you know, had the shoulder surgery, that's gone quicker and he's returned quicker than usual. And here he is sort of back straight on the pitch. And he's got so much to offer as a player, but it still feels as if he's not quite back to his absolute best yet and I just think that if you're talking about Marcus Rashford absolutely at his best then I think he's got absolutely everything that Rowney would want in terms of the pace in terms of the ability to press in terms of game intelligence i.e where to stretch teams he's got so much to offer but I just think we need to get back to and I I just think he's had such a crazy year or so Rashford I actually feel sorry for him because he must be absolutely good. And I think Sancho is such an interesting player. And I think that in, in the last few months, it's it, United just haven't got the best out of him. He's, he's a fantastic entertainer in the way that he provides assists, spectacular moments. He... When, when he used to play for Dortmund, he was just brilliant brilliant fun to watch and I think sometimes in football we forget the importance of that of, of we want really exciting extravagant stylish players and Sancho is absolutely that you know with his flicks and his assists sometimes are so clever like in terms of like you just he's, he's seeing blind passes that we just never spot and I just think getting the best out of him will I think will massively appeal to, to Raniak because this is again a guy that champions young players. And Sancho, I think we forget, is still a young player, still almost a work in progress. So I do think that the opportunity is there and it's really interesting. But I just feel as if United still, if you're going to make that work, I think Rashford is better as a wide forward. And I think Sancho is undoubtedly a winger and again, sort of into, into a system. So United need to find that centre forward. And for me, that's that... that Centre forward, if you're playing a pressing game, well, it's not Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm. Yes, you can get the best out of Sancho and, and Rashford, but neither of them solve the, solve the wider issue. And I have to say, let's not forget about Cavani, because Cavani absolutely typifies the hard-working centre forward. And so if, you, if you're looking for someone to, to play into that mould and method, Cavani's your man. Yeah, United... You know, have got Arsenal next on Thursday. Jordan, you know, you seem pretty chilled today. 
Is that because Arsenal are in the top five? And if so, are they capable of going one better? <laughs> uh, yes, is the answer. We are capable of going one better. Arsenal, I've heard a lot of people now saying that, you know, the project that Arteta inadvertently kind of sold to the footballing world is now coming to fruition. Oh, this is what, this is what the project was. Now we're seeing it. And as you well know, Mike, there's no bigger supporter of Mikel Arteta than, than, than me. I've, I, he's my guy. I've backed him. I wanted him when Wenger left the club. I, so I'm a, I want to make it clear, I'm a fan of his. But I don't think this run of form, take out the Liverpool defeat, is proof of the project necessarily working. I think the run of form is down to two main things. A, he's got the players in that he wanted. And he's, he's now able to have a, a stable back five for the first time in his Arsenal time, as far as I'm aware. And the second thing is a run of fixtures that have been pretty kind. Arsenal have won the games they should be winning and they lost the game they should have lost. I don't think this is any kind of vindication of Arteta's project coming to fruition. I believe there is a project and I believe that Arteta is the guy that can get Arsenal in that top six clutch once again. But I don't, I don't necessarily sign up to the idea that, oh, see, we told you, this is what Arteta was, 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 was banging on about. Oh, this is what the Arteta supporters were. No, I, I still need to see a bit more to, to, to really be on board with the idea that what we're seeing now is the fruits of what Arteta was trying to lay down. The Newcastle game was a game I think was a must win. After the really good run Arsenal had and then losing to Liverpool, you have to win the next game. Because then what Arsenal can say is the Liverpool game was a one-off. They're one of the best teams in Europe. They're levels above Arsenal. That can happen. But you know what? We're going to win the next game. Newcastle game, you, you had to win. And, and they did win that game. So I'm very happy that Arsenal are doing well. I think just briefly on the, on the game itself, I think Arsenal were worthy winners. But Arsenal were fortunate because Newcastle should have had a penalty. Callum Wilson should have had a penalty in, in, in that second half. And what was it, a minute or two later, Arsenal go and score the second goal, a brilliant goal as well. So I think there was a little bit of fortune there, but Arsenal, I think, were the worthy winners. Going to Old Trafford now, Carrick slash Ranić's first came in charge at home in the Premier League. I think it's a really good test for Arsenal because the players will be up for it. We saw they were better against Chelsea as well. That's a game I think Mikel Arteta will be looking to get a result. And I think if Arteta's serious about making Arsenal, as you mentioned there, a top five, top four, dare I say it, club this season, he has to come out of that game with, I think, at least a point. I think at least a point because he's this United team, Arsenal in a poor run of form. So it's a big game coming up. But I think that what's happened before this last handful, couple of handfuls of games, he should be given credit. But that's more down to me, the run of games that Arsenal have had alongside he's now got his players in his team. Yeah, we mentioned Newcastle there, uh, John. What do you make of them? You know, they're at home to Norwich on Tuesday. What still, a game that is. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> it still no win. You know, Howe wants to, Eddie Howe wants to strengthen that defence. Surprise, surprise. But would it be too late by January? Yeah, look, you're running out of games. And I just think, Statistics in football are generally there for a reason. In that, it's in, it's impossible to 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 break the mould. And I just feel as if Newcastle, if they don't win in the next two games, you're going well. Could be could be eight, nine, ten points adrift, and also without without the win, 
you can only get so many wins from your remaining games, frankly. The, the, the law of averages tell you that, really. And I just think they'll run out of time. And so they've just got to get that win on the board. I thought they were so poor on on Saturday. Arsenal didn't play particularly well. Let's be clear. <laughs> they didn't. They were, I thought they were well below their best. And they still won 2-0. But... I, I I didn't think they played that well, but I thought that you know they, you're going to. I thought Newcastle were decent. Oh. I think for a good half an hour in the first half. Well, I thought they were competitive in the first half, so yes, I thought yes. they competed in the first half. But were they going to score? I mean, don't get me wrong. Ramsdale makes a super save from Shelby, mm. but I just think that you know, fair play to Eddie Howe. I look at that team. And I thought that's Eddie Howe going. Well, we don't have what it takes defensively, so I'm going to go for it. And then, unfortunately, the players that he's got there are just not good enough in in many ways to execute that plan. I did think that Newcastle were were disappointing, and I just thought that they would. <laughs> by by the way, the penalty, the penalty. My first reaction was absolutely. It's a penalty all day long. But then Jordan, I've got to say, point out here. Peter Walton said it was definitely no penalty, so it can't be a penalty. <laughs> but no it was quite funny wasn't it because you know Tavares is gone and it's basically shoulder to shoulder I'm still thinking that's a penalty but he has he has gone for the proper old school kind of shoulder barge excuse and it's yeah I I must say I thought it was a pen no wonder Eddie Howe's got gone mad about that because I just can't see <laughs> that's not a pen but it's and then it's a totally different game. But I do feel as if Newcastle were just so lopsided. I didn't think they offered very much, and I didn't think Arsenal needed to be anywhere near their best. There were quite a few players, I think, Arsenal-wise, who were well off the pace. I don't quite know why that was. I mean, Aubameyang being the classic example of that. I mean, that miss in the first half, wow, just not his normal self. He's been playing well lately, and he just wasn't at the races. I didn't think. Saturday and it was it was weird but I just feel as if Newcastle God, he's got such a big job on his hands because this is desperate stakes and it didn't feel as if Newcastle were playing like they know it they're in the last chance saloon already and they've got to get some momentum going they've got to start that against Norwich I think Newcastle will have to have to get some wins early. I, I think they will go down this season. I, I will go. Jordan, Jordan, you know, we started in this this podcast talking about tribal loyalty, so I'm going to offend these tribal loyalties. But again, I look at it from the outside. Isn't it almost a good thing that if they do go down, they've got the opportunity to take a breath, to build a team, to come back straight up? Isn't that better than, you know, messing around and, you know, fourth from bottom? Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, the PR of the richest club in the world being in the championship isn't particularly good. Um, but I mean, they, the Newcastle fans may say, who cares about the PR of it? But yeah, and a year out of the limelight to some degree in the championship to basically get rid of the players you need to get out and start bringing the players in that you want to bring in and taking some gambles. Because if you can bring in some quality players, but also start bringing in some young players from the academy, so that when you do hopefully return to the Premier League, you, you, you have at least a foundation. Do you know what I mean? To kind of build from, spend your money, but on the basis of a foundation of good players and, and a good manager. So yeah, going down wouldn't be, wouldn't be the end of the world for them. I think if they're going to give themselves a chance of staying up though, they have to have players ready, whether it's permanent or loans, ready to come in on the 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th of January. 
they can't they can't start messing around in January. They have to be doing deals now. Those deals have to be done now. And that might be difficult because players may be like, well, I don't know where you're going to be in a month's time. You may be adrift in four weeks' time. But if Newcastle is serious, they have to. They have to have deals almost pretty much signed and done. So by the time the window opens, bang, 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 four or five players are in. We're giving ourselves a chance. Aston Villa, also under new management, lest we forget. Um, they're at home to Man City on, on Wednesday. Uh, John, you were at... Uh... Stephen Gerrard's unveiling. What were your initial impressions of him, and have those impressions been borne out by you know two good wins? Oh, I think yeah, I think very much so. I do. I'm a fully paid up member of the Stevie G fan club here. I love Stephen Gerrard. I think he was amazing as a player, and you know his energy, his oh, he's so dynamic as a footballer. Just wonderful, and I was so I was so happy to see him do so well in his first club at Rangers. And what struck is what strikes you is is this was also at the unveiling, and basically subsequently is that he just embraces you, and he basically brings you in. And you, and, and as a player, it just must be so infectious that you want to kind of win games for him. He just speaks with so much passion, and he, he you know you can understand why. He's just I think all the real elite top managers have this incredible quality where they just get the players on side. They're not necessarily, I think they, but it's, it comes from a level of respect. The players just want to play for that manager and they want to really live and die for that manager. And they're prepared to give absolutely everything on the pitch. And I just think that resonates through with Gerard. Everything that he says, his sort of touchline antics is, you know, just he just has something, I think, and I do think that will carry him a long way as a manager. I've got to say, he's inherited a team that's clearly had a difficult start to the season. They've lost their best player in 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 Jack Grealish for a lot of money. I think it's always going to be a very very tough ask. Buendia was the big summer signing of hope, and it hasn't really worked out yet for him. He's faced difficult challenges in every game because I don't, you know, <laughs> the first game didn't play particularly well, and then you know Watkins comes up in the 83rd minute to score the, you know, the key goal basically, and there was a moment even on Saturday when when you know they're one nil up and Douglas Luiz could have easily been sent off but for VAR's intervention to downgrade his red to a yellow, and again those little turning points. So you do need a little bit of luck, but he's had that on his side. And now to start that reign with two straight wins just gives him a feeling of a momentum. And I do like what Gerard does. He just he, he kind of carries that through and it's exactly what he embraced at Rangers. And then there was that feeling of invincibility and strength. And I think he really has embraced that and got that underway quickly at Villa. I really like what he's done. So finally, John, just want to take a, a continuing look, if we could, at the fan-led review. I know you spoke to Tracy Crouch, you know, the author of that report. One aspect I just want to look at, how can the game become more financially equitable? You know, what responsibility do Premier League clubs have for sustaining the pyramid? Well, they do have a big responsibility and you have to look at that, I guess, in, in, in many ways, really, in terms of, you know, they already offered solidarity payments and this proposal also for a further 10% levy on, 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 on transfers. 
I think is is a good way of doing it. And that then talks about in the report of making sure that League One and League Two clubs stay afloat and on the balance sheet. And also it looks after grassroots football in terms of, you know, pitches, in terms of facilities generally. And I do think they've got their responsibility. Where I think you're always going to have a massive issue, and I do have some sympathy here for the Premier League clubs, the Premier League clubs will turn around and say, as they've already been doing, by the way, <laughs> well, we already give a lot of money away in the solidarity payments. What about the parachute payments? Also, we give a 4% levy, which goes to player development, and 5% to FIFA on, on transfers. You add 10% to that, you've got the best part of 20% on transfers, and then all of a sudden it affects our spending power. But I think the bigger point is this. Why on earth, if you are a Premier League owner or chairman, why would you feel a responsibility to bail out irresponsible owners from the EFL? And that's not just refined to championship clubs because the championship clubs spend recklessly in trying to get back and then get relegated and then fall by the wayside. Why is it that Premier League teams have to bail out Derby County who have gone into administration, Reading who have completely outspent themselves? And in that report, we see that evidence was given that Birmingham City are £100 million in debt. Well, I have to say, I've got some sympathy here. And that's, that's you know, it takes us back to the point, I guess, that Tracy Crouch was trying to make. It's down to the EFL clubs and it's down to the EFL to get a handle on this and correct themselves first to get back to that sort of spending and responsibility to have any respect and any chance from Premier League clubs and the Premier League to get the funding that they need to move forward. Otherwise, it's a complete non-starter. I did speak to Tracy Crouch on the day of publication and I thought it was fascinating to hear from a died-in-the-wall football fan talking about sort of as a, as a kid dribbling around the plant pots in her back garden pretending to be Clive Allen. This is a, you know, this is a person that is absolutely passionate, so passionate about football. And she's recommended an independent regulator for the game. And I think Steve Parrish is, is such a good thinker in the game and does really good things and has written well, put his head above the parapet, as Christian Perslow did to lesser effect perhaps last week. And basically argued, hang on a minute, sort of people like Gary Neville and Bastin, the government, and all of a sudden want to put the kind of the government in charge of this. Well, actually, you're missing out the key word there, independent. And what Tracy Crouch is offering that, yes, she's been in the government, serving MP, sort of loyalties there, but she's recommending an independent regulator. And that's what people are missing there. The football at the top level and downwards needs this regulation it needs this help it needs this governance and the sooner the better really because the premier league rightly or wrongly for clubs like crystal palace because you know they've been tarnished by the super league brush they really have and that's not their fault at all but it's the recklessness of the big six and what they've done all of a sudden it's been the the straw that broke the camel's back and they've woken up smelled the coffee and they've got to do something about it and i think that it's a positive step this yeah, unfortunately, at the moment, we're in the province of smoke and mirrors. I think the apologists for the Premier League are being disingenuous when they talk of £1.6 billion 
uh, filtering down the pyramid in the next three years, around about half of that comes in the form of parachute payments, which distort the competitive landscape in the championship. Instead of trying to delay the implementation of reform, surely the Premier League should just scrap those and redistribute the money. Simplistic? I know. But at least it's a start. A closed shop helps no one. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to John and Jordan for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.